0: Welcome to the Dear King Podcast. This is Lynn Kessner, And as many of you know, I have sat with our survivors so many times with all of our listeners and bring their voices, their truth, their stories to life um, for all of us to listen and heal from and find ways to connect to. So we are so excited and pleased to have with us Leah. Are you comfortable using Leah? Is your name? Yes, ma'am. I am. All then you are Leah for now. Um, and Claire, um, thank you again for co-hosting our podcast. Could you also share with our listeners some sort of self-protective measures that they can employ?
1: Certainly. Welcome, everyone. I'm Claire. And I want to remind you that sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult to hear especially for survivors of trauma. So whether or not what you hear today reflects your own experience, you may feel the need for emotional support. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being by reaching out to family or friends, your counselor if you have one, or even a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Claire, and so welcome to have you on our journey together with all our listeners, Leah. So, you know, every time I think the listeners know me, but they don't know you, and they would love to know where you come to this microphone that makes you a survivor, and just giving a little bit of background background on, you know, where were you born, your siblings, your parent, your educate, like, you know, the yeah,
2: so first, let me thank you, Katie and Claire, for having me on the show. Um, so I am Leah M. Forney. I'm a native of Queens, New York. I currently reside in Maryland. Um, the do- I'm one of six, yes, six siblings. Um, I'm the oldest girl but I'm also the daughter of two addicts. So my mom and dad were both addicts. Um, I was raised by my maternal grandmother and my grandfather um, because my mom did drugs from the time I was born. Um, And my dad was in and out of prison and an alcoholic. So you can probably imagine being born into trauma at a very young age, um, really feeling abandoned, feeling rejected not really knowing why I had to be like the different kid amongst all my friends. You know, a lot of my friends were two parent households and I was being raised by grandma, grandpa, and auntie. Uh, So the young Leah turned to writing. Uh, It was either I was going to write or I was going to fight. That was the thing. I was an angry kid. So I found my comfort in writing. And what I did as a young kid was I wrote just... Different stories. I came up with stories about who my parents were because I wanted to escape the realities of who they were. So when people would ask me about my mom and dad, I always had some elaborate story. Like my dad was a CIA agent on a top secret mission.
0: (laughs) You should have written you you could have written for Netflix, Leah.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that that was even a thing. I didn't know that it was going to lead me anywhere. I didn't know it was going to make me an author one day. I just knew that I had this pain of being abandoned by my parents and I needed to get it out. So I wrote about it. So that's that's me in a nutshell. And then I'm also a sexual assault survivor and activist. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about me.
0: Of course, Leah. So so let's like go through the journey. So now you're a teenager in maryland and you know the first let's talk about a couple of the most poignant parts where you felt like sexual abuse unfortunately came your way i don't know a better way to say that and how did you interpret that what can you remember the first time
2: Yeah, so um, I'll tell you, the first time that I was ever sexually violated was actually when I was living in New York City. And it was just a guy that would see me at the bus stop as a young girl. um, And he one day just walked up on me and groped my breast. Um, I didn't say anything. I didn't report anything. It startled me. And to be honest, I didn't even think that I was worthy or deserving of somebody actually listening. (laughs) <laughs> to me. So I kind of went on about my life at the time. Um, but I will say that there have been plenty of times, even as a young girl dating and just having those those moments where you meet a guy and, and you like the guy, but you don't really want to go all the way with the guy. And so then you're in this like gray area. You know, I had a lot of those experiences. So I, when I actually got sexually assaulted, I got sexually assaulted. I was actually living in the state of North Carolina. And when I was in the state of North Carolina for a little bit, um, I met this guy who just, you know, portrayed himself to be a really nice guy. And we probably went on one date, but it was always something about him that was off. Like, I, I feel like every woman gets that feeling where it's like, something's just not right about this person, but you can't really pinpoint it. But um, so I, I went on the one date with him, and I stopped seeing the guy, but yet he was always around. It just seemed like everywhere I showed up in, North, in the area of North Carolina that I was in, um, he was there. And it was always in the weirdest times. <laughs> and so the day that he sexually violated me um, was three days before my birthday, January 27, 2013. And I actually got a phone call that day that a loved one of mine had passed away. So he ended up calling me literally right after I got that phone call and I was distraught and you could tell I was distraught. So his way to get, to get in my house was, let me come over and comfort you, right? So against my better judgment, I'm kind of like, nah, no, yeah, nah. okay. And he just kept being adamant about it. So finally I caved in. Well, little did I know he was sitting outside my apartment. So he was at my door (laughs) within seconds. Um, And the minute he walked into my house, I just got this really eerie feeling in my gut. Like something is not right, something is off. And what was supposed to be a moment of comforting, as he put it, was him basically telling me how I rejected him and he didn't like that I rejected him and nobody is to reject him. Um, and I just remember asking him, hey, can you just, you know, can you leave? Because this is this is going so left. Like, can you leave? And just when I thought he was about to leave, he actually grabbed me and pinned me up against the wall and proceeded to sexually violate me. And I can remember still to this day, and it's nine years later, I can remember him saying to me, I am going to ruin your life. I'm going to damage you and I'm going to make it so no man ever wants you again. And that moment, I, again, nine years later, I still can remember it to this day. It was the longest five, 10 minutes of my life. And when it was done, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) I didn't know anything about evidence. I didn't know any of that. It was just, how do I get this person's scent and fragrance and all of this off of me? So I proceeded to shower, which I know now you should never do. Um, but again, I my mind wasn't thinking, oh, you're evidence, right? <laughs> like, I went to the shower and I just scrubbed until I couldn't scrub anymore. And I remember confiding in a friend of mine who was like, Leah, you have to call the police. And again, being one, a woman, and then two, a woman of color. So I'm double minority. Who's going to believe me is the first thing I'm thinking, like who in their right mind is going to believe that I've been sexually violated? Yeah, so I definitely, so I confided in my spiritual mom. She was already doing um, sexual assault advocacy work because she was actually the mother of a rapist so she was on the other side of the of the spectrum and she watched as you know basically the justice system did these women who her son was you know convicted of raping horribly and so she decided that she wanted to kind of be the advocate that was going to support them and walk them through that process of really knowing that it's not your fault. And so when I confided in her, that was literally the first thing she said to me was, it's not your fault. And then she walked me through, you know, going and actually calling the police and making the report. And I'll tell you, having the police question me as if I did something wrong added insult to industry like to injury right because i'm standing in my living room and i have a male cop who's literally like well you said you went on a date with him are you sure you didn't ask him are you sure like as if i did something wrong and it was heartbreaking to be in that moment and you're already feeling the brunt of the violation and now i'm being questioned as if i'm wrong when someone hurt me so I ended up going through the legal process the first time (laughs) I ended up going through the legal process. I picked them out in the lineup. I did all those things. Um, And we had our day in court after he chose not to show up twice. We finally had our day in court. And the first time we were in court was really to just get a restraining order. It wasn't even to like go through trial or anything. And I stood in the courtroom and I, and I stood amongst a lot of male, um, the judge was a male, the, the, like the bail, like, so I'm in the, basically in the courtroom full of males and I'm sharing what happened to me. And literally, so my, my perpetrator, he came into the courtroom with like a notepad of things that he had dug up about me, that he was going to use against me. And he literally tried to paint this picture like, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about because she's actually, a, she, he actually said, I'm the daughter of two addicts. He was like, his, her mother didn't even raise her. Like he was just trying to use things against me. So I pointed out because what I found out going through the proceedings was that my rapist was actually a married man and I had no clue that he was a married man. And so I brought it up because I actually found that out on Facebook. And the judge asked him, well, did you tell her that you were married? And he said, no, I didn't feel like she needed to know that I was married. So I'm pointing out, like, how can you believe somebody that literally is lying about being married? And yet this white male judge is like, yeah, you're just a woman scorn. You're just upset because he's like married and don't want to be with you. So... Right after the proceeding officially ended, I broke down. I was very distraught because, again, I'm I'm doing what I, I'm told to do, right? The justice is created to help you, right? So I'm doing my part and I'm being told that it didn't happen. So I had a breakdown. And then I was approached by a white male sheriff officer who basically told me if I didn't get it together, he was going to lock me up. And I'm sitting here flabbergasted because I'm like, I'm watching my perpetrator walk out. Like, he's a free man and he's walking out the doors. And I don't have the right to be hurt and upset that nobody believed me.
1: During this, you didn't have a victim advocate or anything like that with you, did you?
2: So I didn't. I did have an advocate when I did my rape kit. Um, because that was the other thing. So when I had to do the whole proceedings and the lineup, we did have to do a rape kit, um, which as a survivor of sexual assault, it's the most uncomfortable experience of your life. Um, your body is literally evidence. They're going through your clothes, they're picking, you know, through your hair, they're collecting evidence. And then you're having to retell the story over and over again, so they make sure that they have all the details. So when I was in the emergency room, they did send an advocate from Durham Crisis Response Center, um, which was the rape crisis center in the county, uh, to be with me. And they were very supportive. They allowed me to know um, what resources were available to, available to me and that how I could get counseling and all of This, which is something that as an advocate, <laughs> I'm finding that so many victims and survivors are not even given that information.
0: When you sat there, you're I feel like you're you're a lot more gracious about skin color than we should be. And calling out both gender and race and all biases is really important. I always sit and try and be every for 30 years, Leah, I sit always whether I'm sitting in Montana when I am sitting in, in an urban school in Florida, I sit and just get rid of my skin. I try, try, try Leah every time. And I'm asking you to do that too and be more judgmental than you're being tonight. You're being kind. And I appreciate that. But
2: Yeah, so I definitely, so my sexual assault nurse was a white woman um and I could just tell you the experience was very cold um it felt very robotic I didn't necessarily feel compassion um probably the only person that I felt compassionate from was an advocate but the advocate was a woman of color right so she could relate she could connect with me on that level whereas a nurse couldn't
1: and I actually is a here's a technical thing that most people don't realize. When they did that, when the nurse did the exam, did she use a dye, mm-hmm. a toluene blue dye on you? That doesn't show up for women with dark skin. Yeah, and there are people now. People, people. In fact, a friend of mine is has been doing research on a different, a different something solution that will work regardless of how the the lightness or darkness of your skin but mostly if women have dark skin it will show those injuries that toluene blue dye is supposed to show which it does not yeah. if you're dark-skinned yeah and that's where it, even she didn't have control over that but you know the idea that that even the way a physical
2: evidence kit is devised is
1: devised for white women mm-hmm
2: yeah, and 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 you great you made a great point, Clara, because they don't consider that they don't consider my pigmentation, they don't consider that I'm light skin, and so it might show up differently. There is Im- implicit bias, right, from the nurses to the law enforcement that, and it and it stems from this notion that women of color, right, can take pain. <laughs> that's where it comes from. It comes from the societal notion of you can handle pain. So even if somebody violated you, you can handle it, right? And so that puts us in a position to not want to report.
1: And and where did that notion come from?
2: I feel like it literally started from slavery and this notion that again, Black women, we're, we can you can take pain. That's why they weren't given medicine when they give birth. That w- like it was this notion that you can handle it, you can take pain, and that is the reason why we still in twenty twenty two, it's still that same concept. So when they see a woman of color, it's easier to be like, oh no, she can you know she could handle it if it did happen. Which puts us in a position to feel like, again, what is the point? Why should I report? Why should I do my part and tell law enforcement that this has happened to me? If the notion is going to be, you can take pain.
1: And Black women are more sexual and Black women are right. sluts, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Et cetera right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, every woman who has a gynecological examination today and that speculum, who devised it? A man who worked who experimented on slave enslaved women. Yeah. And they were the first victims of American gynecology. I mean, it's
2: yeah. Yeah. So that that journey, again, not knowing that on that day when I did my rape kit and they, you know, handed it off to law enforcement. That they weren't going to do anything with it, you know. So after that day in the hospital, I got connected with the Durham Crisis Response Center. I got um, the free counseling with a with a white woman who, by the way, was phenomenal. So I always I always like to say I truly believe there are culturally competent white people out. But I just think
0: in your unique way to carve out healing. It's important, Leah. You're a brilliant girl. And tonight, I'm so glad I got to meet you, honestly. And then finally, um,
1: where to from here, Claire? Anything else you want to ask those three things? You had a rape kit that wasn't... You have a rape kit that wasn't processed, right? So was this a different incident
2: then, the rape kit? No. It was his rape kit. It was his rape kit. So... Um... So just to catch the whole thing up. So I was, I was in counseling. I did counseling at the local rape center for about th- two years, three years. Um, and I'll tell you that journey was very hard. Um, the biggest thing that I struggled with, well, two big things. The first one was feeling attractive. So I would literally show up to counseling sessions in a hoodie and sweatpants. Like I did everything in my power to not look attractive, to not be attractive. Like I just didn't want any male attention. And my therapist, who again, a phenomenal Caucasian therapist was like really encouraging me to just do little things like go get your nails done, you know, go get your like just little things to start to reconnect with me again, because I was so disconnected. It was like, I just don't want nobody to like me, think I'm beautiful, like nothing because of the violation. The other part of sexual assault recovery that many people don't talk about is this hypersexuality that happens to many survivors. So I got into this place and space where I found myself gravitating to sex and wanting to have sex and having sex with as many people as I wanted to have sex with. And when I brought it to my therapist, she said to me, that's because you're trying to regain control. She was like, remember, sexual assault violation is not about the sex. It's about power and control. And so you had this violation where someone took control over you, took power from you, and you're trying to regain it by having sex, sexual encounters. And so I was in this space for a while where I just was like, well, if they're going to take it, might as well go ahead and give it to them. And then that wasn't, it. every time I had a sexual encounter with a man that I barely even knew, I felt less and less and less as a woman. And so I had to get to a place where I stopped trying to not deal with it because it was dealing with me and really buy into counseling and doing the work because, again, as a woman of color, in our community we don't believe in counseling right everything is you know you pray it away like you don't go to counseling so me taking this step to do something that generationally in my family was never done which is go to counseling and really buy into the fact that this could be the thing to really help me heal i've heard this from a lot
1: of um particularly black survivors black women survivors the you know the pray it away thing that they heard from family um and can you talk a little bit about that? Because the pressure on uh, Black women survivors in particular, more than other women of color, th- that that this is something you keep in the community, That and what the burdens are in terms of reporting from the idea that police is being a hostile force, but also who are, you are
2: reporting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So in the Black and Brown culture, we're we're believe we're taught that two things. One, what happens in the house stays in the house, right? So there's this notion of being loyal to your family. So even if your perpetrator is a family member, right? You don't talk about it. There's just certain things we're not having conversations about. But also Black and Brown communities spirituality has always been what we stood on. Religion has always been what we stood on. Um, Many of us have the Christian faith. So we are taught from a young age that no matter what it is that you go through, you pray about it and then let God deal with it. But what the pressure that comes with that is that you can be praying all day about something and still be dealing with the emotional heaviness that comes with being sexually violated or whatever the trauma is. And so there's never been this balance. And, and it's starting to happen now where we encourage that when something is that heavy and it's out of your control, that you can go seek professional help. For many years, it's always just been pray about it. Let God do what he going to do. He going to fix it. He going to make it work and you're going to be okay. And that's not always the case. You know, I tell people all the time, I truly believe you can have the cross, your relationship with God and the couch, and you can go seek professional help. There's no need to choose between the two, but it's, it's how we were raised. It was the culture and being told, listen, we don't do therapy. We don't go because to many African-American cultures, it was the white man's thing, right? Oh, we don't—we're not going to talk to them white people about what we're going through, and that whole culture is very toxic and it's very traumatizing because many of us, it takes us years to get to a place where we're ready to actually deal with things that happened to us when we were five, six, seven, eight, because of how we were taught.
0: This is really important to me, and I—I I find soulless in trying to sit in our faith. But may I just dig one level more? Sometimes when I try and dig deep and sit in your space, I'm so really worried that the the faith narrative of all you just narrated so beautifully still puts Black women below Black men. Mm Mm-hmm right? I'm so, so worried that even when we have to go to our faith for salvation, for validation, for solace, for comfort, which I, you know, I'm hearing all of that in your voice, but I'm so fearful um, what that means still for gender bias. Maybe we could talk about that. Yeah. I think
2: think that gender bias play such a huge role in in the system and and in um you know sexually violent crimes because outside of the notion that black women can deal with pain unfortunately women um in a lot of cases are still looked at as property right like it's 2022 and there's still this notion that you know if you are married and your husband decides to take it like That's your husband. You supposed like it's we still have this fight against the fact that I have the right to say yes and no about my my body and what I want. Um, and then even having the right to not just say yes and no, but I have the right to stop when I feel like stopping. And it doesn't have to be, well, you said yes, so then even though you're telling me no now, I can continue, right? So I think that where gender bias comes in is this whole thing about consent, right? And why we're not teaching our young boys that no does mean no and that you don't get to push the lines because, well, she started, so she must've won. I have the right to back out whenever it gets uncomfortable for me. And until we begin to really educate our young men about consent, what that looks like, what that doesn't look like, and and how you per, one protect yourself because then somebody will be sitting here saying that you raped them, right? But then two, turning around and teaching them how to respect the woman and and what she's really bringing to the table. So yeah, gender bias and racism are two big things that whether law enforcement wants to admit it or not plays a huge role in how they show up and deal with victims and survivors.
1: And I I would imagine that, and I've heard this from women too, the idea that um, if your perpetrator is uh, a member of the community, you do not report them because you're turning them into the police, which is another problem. So, and then of course, the police don't help the the survivor anyway. So it's almost as if you cannot win either way. How do we affect change tonight
0: with our brainstorm? It does have to change, but how do we do it, Leah? Your best efforts.
2: I do a lot lot of activism and active and advocacy um, here in the state of Maryland. I work with the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and one of the things that I've been blessed to do, and I'm actually going to do it again this year, is train law enforcement. And in training law enforcement, what my what I my goal is to help them bridge that gap between. Um, them and the victims, because let's be real, l- law enforcement gets a really bad rap, right? And how they handle cases, how they handle, you know, the black and brown community. So, in training them, one of the things that we have to do is we have to take responsibility for the system failing them. And this is the part in my training that law enforcement cannot stand me about. Because when I say things like you have to offer up an apology, when you are contacting victims and survivors to say hey we are we tested your rate kit and we want to know like they will say well i i didn't personally mess up so why and it's not a personal it's recognizing that the system failed this individual right if i gave you my rate kit 8 years ago i expected that 8 years ago you were going to do your job and you didn't So how we do that is, one, getting law enforcement to really recognize that they're a vital piece in their interaction with victims and survivors, right? And getting them to understand that the other thing I teach them is the importance of validation. I'm not asking you to sit here and take complete onus of what happened. What I'm saying is hear me recognize that, you know what, something happened to you and that really sucked. And I am sorry that it happened to you. Because for a victim and a survivor, that's one thing that we don't hear is I'm sorry. I can tell anybody to this day, nine years later, the state of North Carolina still has yet to apologize to me. Still has yet to say I'm sorry for messing up, for not doing what I was supposed to do. And so validating that person's experience is key, but then offering the apology on behalf of the system and getting them to understand that the system failed these people. And then the third thing I always try to teach is the importance of giving of timely information. Many survivors and victims have no clue that there are resources. They don't know that crime victims will cover their cost of counseling. They don't know that you can possibly have a civil suit against your perpetrator. They don't know these things. And law enforcement will say, well, that's common sense. To who? Because if I've never been raped, would I know where the local rape crisis center is? Probably not, right? So getting them to understand the importance of timely information, getting them to understand the importance of actually walking them through the process and getting them to understand, okay, you did this kid. This is what's going to happen next. This is, you know, from there, you'll get connected with the DA. The DA will actually, like, helping them through that. So the first step is really trying to figure out a way, how do we bridge that gap so that victims and survivors can look to law enforcement as, oh, you are here to really protect and serve me versus um, (laughs) I'm just here to do my job. Because they don't understand that coldness that comes across. We feel it. And it doesn't make it easier.
1: Absolutely I think that that's so interesting and, and wonderful that you're doing that in the training because when when people enter um, law enforcement for a career and they're they're starting out, they're thinking I'm gonna catch the bad guys or maybe I'm gonna help a community. we don't know what they're thinking and and here's someone saying you need to be you need to be gentle you know all the things they're learning about catching people and getting suspects has to turn around and be, you have to be soft. You have to be listening. You have to be kind, you know, and it's, it's a big shift for a lot of people.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like If we could role play,
0: like imagine this Leah, you could say, Hey, cause you and I had the same, we had to sit with police. I did as you did. And when I was 18, even before you, I'm sorry, I'm an old lady compared to you. Um, but when I went into a police station, they said, Um, please describe what you were wearing. Um, oh, how much did he pay for dinner? Oh, really? You're a virgin? I'm gonna have to interview all of your past boyfriends. So, you know, you know, the, the, I kind of listen and I think the space and place between you and I is only 35%. Like mathematically, it's only we've we we've only moved the dial thirty five percent. So for our survivors sitting with you, Leah, you know I did not. I was I'm so scared as you were being interviewed by police. Right, we're scared. Like in fact, like it's really cool, Leah. I was scared, and I'm white, heterosexual woman. St- daughter of an FBI agent, straight A virgin, like how scared must every other hum- human victim
2: be? You know, um, I what I will say in, in being brave, um, and this is for any victim and survivor, like I do the work that I do because I know there's so many that don't get this opportunity to speak up. Um, I do what I do because, as an aunt of twelve, I think of my nieces and nephews and how I can leave this world a little bit better for them <laughs> when I go. Um, I do what I do because I don't. It, it stops on my watch. It it was literally a feeling of eight not eight years later when they tested my rape kit and called me. It was a feeling of not on my watch. How do I make sure? that I'm speaking up for other women, for other men, for other children that are going through this, that are suffering in silence. Um, So for the world, it's bravery. For me, it's a calling. It's me saying that I refuse to back down to a system that continues to make it seem as though I don't matter. Um, And that is one of the reasons why, on top of being an advocate, and I was sharing with Claire offline, I'm actually writing and co-producing my first documentary. And it's targeting Black women and sexual assault and having those stories heard because I wanted to, sit to produce a film where women, Black women of color, women of color finally had a voice. And I literally titled it The Forgotten because when it comes to sexual assault and sexual violence, we are. Nobody hears us. Nobody pays attention to us. And so it stops now because I refuse to keep going. And and, and if I got to go up against the system every single day of my life, I will because someone needs to know that we matter just as much as our Caucasian sisters, as much as our Asian sisters, as much as our Latinos, like we matter just as much. And we have to change the narrative that we take pain. And so because we take pain so easily and so adequately, that there's that we don't matter no so i say that to say that i do it for them i do it for every, i think of every victim and survivor and i put myself back in that place in those shoes and what it was like to stand in that courtroom and what it was like to have that you know that cop question me as if i did something wrong and i i literally do that work and i hold hands with other victims and survivors i've had so many women come to me after they've heard me speak and thank me for finally giving them a voice. And that's why I do what I do.
0: So well said. Um, I think I could talk to you for a long time, Leah. Um, and laud and applaud all of your work. Um, and I, I I, kind of like the fact that you and I were sitting in the prison together. <laughs> Like, I still, so indelibly imprinted in my mind. And sometimes, like, I sat there, Leah. I was, I was reporting a crime like you. And I was scared a lot. Like, I could be put behind the bars next. Like, I, I was scared I did something wrong. And we sacrifice speaking our truths fearing that we may be beyond bars next. And so, you know, I don't know what that means to you, but I kind of like, even though my white skin sat with that, like I had that same fear. And before we round out, I think that's beautiful. Like how do we overcome, I'll tell you what I did and then Leah, can you share what you did? I had that fear. I was like, the prison, the, 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 so the, the police officer in his beautiful garb, white male, we'll say, pointed to the prison behind me. And he said, are you sure that this wealthy, rich, privileged, I, I forget how many things he took. And here's how he said it. Are you sure that a man who could afford to buy you a $500 French dinner, right? Are you sure that a man who could afford to bring you back to any place he to, to offer you should come to his palace, are you really sure that he raped you? Because it doesn't sound, this is the white white man, the, the white man who interviewed me. It doesn't really sound logical. Like, I was always intellectually demeaned, right? I, I don't know if you felt the same. I don't think it sounds logical that you, coming from cornfields and having no money, wouldn't have just offered yourself in some way to access this privilege that you had never known. And that is the story of every woman's nightmare. I'm sorry. I, I land on that narrative, that I'll never forget it.
2: No, but for you, it was a white male detective. And for me, it was a white woman. It was a white woman detective that acts just like that. And you would think- one woman to another, right? You would under, You would empathize. You would, and she was just as bad as the as the male cop,
0: right? And I think that's only so interesting because you and I are decades of tw- two decades apart. Leah, think about that. What we've grown is like land a white woman in the the the, the place of a male white cop, and try to garner. You and I, as victims, trying to tell our truths. Thank you for you know, sharing your narrative, your experience, your wealth of empowerment. Truly, and if you could have one last state of empowerment, what would you say to our listeners who are also survivors of all walks and places?
2: Um, you know, I would say, I would say two things. One that you're not alone. Um, the other thing that I would say is find a way to turn your pain into power, uh, because somebody else needs to hear your story. Somebody else needs to know that they're not alone in their own journey. And when we speak up, things happen. So that's what I would say.
0: Thank you so much, Leah. And to all of our listeners, again, this is Dear Katie Podcast. Thank you for sitting with us, journeying with us, learning with us. Together, we shatter the silence and, and the violence. Thank you and good night. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.